Morning, Natalia. If we go to the first, oh, it's up there. Look at that. It's up already. Look at that. Brilliant. Um, we're going to address the whole topic of the uniqueness of Jesus in a ward of other faiths, because um, where I live in Scotland, and of course here in London, and even where Tony and I grew up in London, sort of, you know, 45 and a few other years ago, um, very multicultural. So in Wandsworth, the part of South London, or South London, as we used to call it back in those days, where I grew up, um, even in the 1970s and 90s, 1980s, we were surrounded by every other religion and imaginable. You know, where I grew up in Wandsworth, you could choose from Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Judaism, Jainism, secularism, Islamism. You could even support the local football team, Crystal Palace. We called that masochism. Uh, was the, there was actually a fan. <laughs> There's always one, always one. We should pray for you later. And um, of course, even back then as a kid, I remember thinking, this raises the question of, you know, how do we, what does it mean to talk about Christ being unique, which is the claim at the heart of Christianity, when there are all these other religions around. And in fact, when I go on to, into secular settings, one of the common questions and one of the common objections I hear from people is, you know, you Christians are so arrogant. You are so arrogant because you believe that Jesus is the only way. You know, university students will often say to me, isn't it more inclusive? Isn't it more welcoming? Isn't it more affirming and friendly? Isn't it just much more British? just to say all religions lead to God. All religions lead to God. In fact, if I, have a, if I had a quid for every time somebody has said to me, couldn't all religions lead to God, I could afford not just to go to the seaside on a church outing, I could buy a cottage at the seaside, probably, probably only Scarborough, but you know, still, it's, you know, take what you can. Well, while I can understand in one sense, this desire to affirm that all religions lead to God. It's a really easy solution to living in a very diverse age. I actually think that the idea that all religions lead to God is one of the worst ideas going. It's a bad idea. It's a dangerous idea. It's an incredibly unhelpful idea. And I'd like to show you why and help us think a bit more about what is unique about Jesus and all of our other faiths this morning. And I want to do it uh, with the help of the New Testament, and particularly with a really helpful passage in John's Gospel. So if you've got a Bible with you um, this morning, we're going to take a look at John chapter 13, uh, verses 31 through to uh, beginning of verse, uh, t- verse 10 of chapter 14. And it's going to come up on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, you can kind of keep it open uh, as we go. So let me read to you uh, what John tells us here in John chapter 13, beginning, as I say, at verse 31. Jesus said, Now the uh, Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you just a little longer. You will look for me, and as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another." By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus said, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, 
so that you also may be, may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Do you know, one of the first things that strikes me as we look at those sort of 20 or so verses in, in John's gospel there this morning, is this accusation, you know, that's sometimes flung at Christians that, you know, we're terrible people because we're exclusive and we claim that Jesus is unique. As you read this passage, of course, you notice something, don't you? It's not Christians who are exclusive, it's Jesus who is exclusive. If you want to take Jesus seriously, you want to take his words seriously, you have to wrestle with the fact, you have to face the fact that he told people to give up everything and follow him. He told people to put family and work and money second to him. He told them, he told people that his teaching was on a par with with that of God's. He claimed to be able to do things that according to the Old Testament, according to the Jewish Torah, only God himself could do. And here in John's gospel, Jesus comes right out and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Only through me, says Jesus, can a person find truth, can a person find meaning, and can find a person find, find life. So it's Jesus who you have to wrestle with if you have a problem with exclusivity. And of course, this can be very hard for 21st century ears to hear. You know, here we are in London, one of the most multicultural cities in the world. Before I moved to Scotland, I lived in Toronto, probably also one of the most uh, multicultural cities in the world. Most of our major towns and cities now are full of different faith traditions. And Western culture has drummed into us the idea that the one thing you must never do is be exclusive. You know, we are told repeatedly through the media that the way to peace and tolerance and harmony and rainbows and kittens and unicorns is to affirm that no thank you one person is to affirm that nobody nobody is better than the other and again isn't that more tolerant isn't that more liberal isn't that more inclusive and the simple answer is no it isn't no it isn't you see the first reason the first problem in fact with the claim that all religions lead to god why i say it is a spectacularly bad idea, not a helpful idea, is it actually doesn't lead to inclusivity. It actually, ironically, leads to intolerance, it leads to hatred, and it leads to violence. How so? Well, think about Jesus' words that we read a moment ago in John chapter 13, verse 33 and 36. That is one of the many predictions that Jesus made about the death that he was going to suffer. He predicted, he told his disciples again and again that he would shortly suffer, that the political and religious leaders would conspire to have him arrested, tortured, and executed. Now, of course, we know that story so well, whether we are Christians or have simply come because we're kind of checking out the Christian faith. You know, most of us know that's how the story of Jesus, that's the climax that happens at Easter. But what we miss, of course, or we can easily miss, is the context in which that 
took place. The first century Greco-Roman world was incredibly multicultural and multi-religious. It was much more diverse, actually, than our 21st century uh, Western world that we find today. In the ancient world, in the ancient world of Athens or Rome, one of those ancient cities, if you discovered a new god or goddess, all you did was you went, fantastic, there's another one, and you added it to the pantheon of household gods that you worshipped. The Greeks and the Romans were incredibly pluralistic. They make the average Londoner look like a sluggard. Yet for all of that, For all of that, the Greco-Roman world, the ancient world, was also incredibly intolerant. It was outrageously intolerant. You know, there was slavery. There was violence. There was economic inequality. Women and children treated as second-class citizens. The poor trampled on. Life was short, vicious, brutal, and cheap. And the brutality of that world was illustrated by what it did to Jesus. A man who hadn't tried to raise an army. A man who hadn't tried to start a revolution or overthrow a government, or any of those things, a man who had claimed to be the Messiah, the world's true king. And that claim challenged the secular authorities head on, challenged the authority structures of the day head on, and we know what happened to Jesus. And it strikes me that sometimes claims of pluralism, sometimes claims of tolerance, are merely masks, and occasionally the mask slips And you see what is underneath. No, all religions are the same. The culture smiles sweetly. Oh, but by the way, if you think there's something unique about you, here comes the boot and the iron fist. Or I sometimes say to, you know, particularly when I'm speaking to students, I'll often say on campuses, I'll say, you know, do you think that you're you're enlightened? Do you think you're very progressive for for nodding along to the, the idea that all religions lead to God? Well, what if that claim actually leads you to sideline or ignore others? Because, of course, if you believe that your Muslim friend, your Buddhist friend, your Hindu friend, your Sikh friend, if you believe they all believe the same as you, you don't actually have to get to know them. You don't have to listen to them. You don't have to take the time to find out what they believe because it's the same as what you believe. And actually, ironically, this claim of of, of, of tolerance that we hear everywhere actually leads to ignoring people who are different. So I want to suggest that the first reason that the claim all religions lead to God is a bad idea is that it stops you listening to those who aren't like you, and at worst, it can lead to violence and oppression as you try and squash any differences, because really differences are problematic. But we can go deeper. That is a second problem with the claim that all religions uh, lead to God. And the problem with it is that it's actually profoundly arrogant. And again, this is deeply ironic, actually, because it's sometimes Christians who are accused of, of arrogance for suggesting that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. But actually, it's the claim that all religions are the same, or essentially the same, that is profoundly arrogant. And let me show you why. It's a very famous uh, parable. Some of you may have heard this before, an old Indian folk story about the four blind men and the elephant. And according to this, uh, this legend, there was, a, there was a famous kind of Indian king who uh, one day he was a bit bored and wanting a bit of entertainment. So he had the bright idea of bringing an elephant into his, his throne room. And I hope the carpet wasn't too expensive because this is not going to end well. And he brings the elephant into his throne room, and he brings in four blind men who've never in their life encountered an elephant. And he asks each of them to go and sort of, you know, feel the elephant and fumble around it, and then tell him and the gathered courtiers what they think an elephant is like. And the first blind man grabs hold of the elephant's trunk and proceeds to announce, an elephant, sire, is like a snake. 
And so everybody laughs and applauds politely. Second blind man stumbles into one of the legs of the mighty beast and kind of hugs it. And he goes, mate, I have no idea what you're smoking because an elephant is like a tree. Third blind man approaches the elephant from the rear and, and tugs on the tail. And he said, you guys are bonkers. An elephant, man, it's like a rope. And the fourth blind man stumbles into the side of the elephant and feels around him. And he goes, guys, you, you lot have just lost it because an elephant is like a wall. And they begin fighting and, and arguing and soon fists are thrown and it's all chaos. And uh, there's the king up there on his throne kind of laughing at the, the scene in front of him. That story is sometimes told by people to sort of try and make points about, you know, religious inclusivity of going, well, maybe if, you know, Buddhists and Jews and Christians and whatnot, if we could just all affirm that we just have part of the elephant, not the whole elephant, life be so much more peaceful. But think about this uh, for a moment. The story only works because sitting up there on the throne, on, his, on the dais up there at the end of the throne room, is the king who can see the entire elephant. In fact, if you think about it, the king is the most arrogant one in the entire parable because he's sitting up there going, well, I know everything and you poor fools down here are not probably enlightened. And actually, the same applies when people use this story about religious diversity. The person who says, you know, the, if only the poor, foolish Hindus, if only those ignorant Christians, if only they were as wise as I am, and they could just realize they only have part of the elephant. If only everybody was like me, so wise and so progressive, then the world would be a wonderful place. It's actually a deeply arrogant approach to the world. It's nasty, it's ignorant, it's narrow-minded, it's imperialistic, a whole host of terrible other adjectives as, uh, as well. And ironically, it's not inclusive, it's exclusive. It's a view of the world that says everyone needs to be like me and my view of the world, otherwise, well, the world's in trouble. By contrast, look what Jesus does in John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6, where Jesus talks about himself being the way, the truth, and the life. Have you noticed what he offers here is not an arrogant exclusivity. It's not a closed exclusivity. It's an open exclusivism. Jesus is an open exclusivist. There's a phrase for you this morning. There's no whiff of arrogance. There's no whiff of superiority. There's no sort of sense of Jesus you know, giving license to Christians to go around insulting other faiths. Jesus doesn't sit here going, look who I am. Haven't you dumbasses figured it out? There's none of that at all. Rather, Jesus is a very invitational in that exclusivity. Look at the context as the clue. It's Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, who is so upset at the thought of Jesus leaving and leaving them behind. I don't know the way to where you are going, pleads Thomas. And in response, Jesus looks at him with compassion and says, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, says Jesus. The very things that you're looking for, love and peace and forgiveness and acceptance and welcome and a relationship with God, all of those, says Jesus to Thomas, and he says to each one of us, all of those, says Jesus, can be yours through me. And then he adds, doesn't he? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I am the way to what you're looking for. And says Jesus, all are welcome. It's not about whether you're clever enough or have mastered the right religious truths or are deep enough or moral enough or spiritual enough. None of those things. You don't need to be anything enough to come to Jesus, but you have to be willing to lay all those down. Lay those down, Jesus says, and come to me. And if this is an exclusive truth, and I think it is an exclusive truth, it is the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. 
because nobody is excluded. So that's the second problem uh, with the claim that all religions lead to God and Jesus' answer to that challenge. But there's one last reason that I want to share with you this morning. One last reason why the claim that all religions lead to God is a spectacularly bad idea, a magnificently bad idea, and it's simply this. It misses something hugely important. It misses the important question, what do we mean by God? What do we mean by God? Because, of course, you may have noticed this, but people use words very, very differently. Very, very differently. I lived in North America for six years, and I had a crash course in the fact this is the case. Americans do not use the word tea in the same way that the way the English do. Um, in tea, America, the Americans mean something lukewarm with a dash of cream by the side. Um, Canadians use the word pants to mean trousers, which caused my wife and I some huge confusion in our first couple of weeks, but that's a story for another time. Um, and the same applies to the word God. People, people use the word God very differently. If you ask different people what do you think the word God means, you get some very different answers. For example, one of the most famous atheists in the world, Richard Dawkins of Oxford University, a very, very committed, very angry atheist, has written many books on atheism, he rejects God as, and I quote, a jealous, proud, vindictive, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, pestilential, sadomasochistic bully. Um, That tells me a couple of things. It tells me, first of all, that Professor Dawkins has a much more impressive dictionary than I do, because there's some remarkably long words in there, and I probably wouldn't challenge him to scrabble. Um, Secondly, it tells me he is using the word God very differently to the way that I'm using it, and most of us, hopefully, would be using it, because if I had Richard across a coffee table, I would say, well, Richard, I don't believe in that kind of God either. So I'm quite a relief, actually, because that's not the God the Bible talks about. But the problem doesn't simply stop with our atheist friends. When people say they believe that all religion leads to God, a very good question we can ask is, what do you mean by God? What do you mean by God in that statement? Which God are you talking about? And let's just use Islam as a little bit of a test case here this morning. As Tony said in his uh, introduction, I've been, been sort of working with and, and studying Islam, Muslims and studying Islam now for about 20 years. Uh, my, my PhD, my academic work, is actually in, in the Quran. I basically ticked the wrong box on the university application form, and it was three months where I realized I was studying Arabic, not New Testament Greek, and I thought, well, I've paid the fees. No, not really. Um, never, never do that joke <laughs> ever again. Um, and... Um, So Islam is, in a sense, the religion I know best, other than Christianity. And 20 years of studying the Quran, reading it in Arabic, engaging with Muslims across the country and around the world, tells me something very very clearly, actually, that our Muslim friends, and we and those of us who are Christians, we do not mean the same thing when we talk about God. In fact, I, I, I wrote a book last year. I was, you know, what with lockdown and whatnot, I thought I might as well be, in fact, I can't get out, I might as well do something useful. So I wrote a book for IVP called The Muslims and Christians... Uh, worship the same God. And when you look at the Quran, the scripture of Islam, and you compare the description of the God of the Bible and how the Bible talks about God, you see some pretty important differences, actually. Let me illustrate um, just a couple of them to you this morning. Um, if we were to turn to the Bible and say, well, okay, what's God like? You know, how does the Bible describe God? What's his characteristic? What's his nature? What do we mean? Uh, what does the Bible mean when we, we talk about God? Well, there are a number of things that leap out at you quite quickly. The first thing I'd say is the Bible is very clear that one of God's chief attributes is God is relational. He's a relational God. This is true, actually, the whole of the, the Bible. Almost on the very first page, certainly on the second page 
of the Bible, depending on the print size of your edition. Um, you'll discover in Genesis chapter 3, for example, that just after God has created everything, he's created the universe and stars and planets and galaxies, he's created the earth and filled it with mountains and rivers and lakes and plants and animals and human beings and estate agents and you know everything that God, everything that God has, has made there right at the beginning. Um, what does he do in Genesis 3? He steps into creation and is found walking and talking with Adam and Eve. He's a relational God. A few chapters on in the Old Testament, he appears to Moses at the burning bush and reveals his very own personal name, Yahweh, uh, to Moses in that powerful encounter. Then you could go right to the very, very end of the Bible, book of Revelation, the last uh, book in the Bible, and the penultimate chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21, which describes what eternal life will be like, what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. What do we see again? We see it's relational. We're promised that God will dwell with human beings as he did in the beginning, wiping away every tear from our eyes. And that theme of God being relational runs through the whole of the Bible, and it's seen most clearly in the person of Jesus who is, you should know by now, claim not to be just another teacher, not just another prophet, not just another leader, but God himself. Uh, God himself come in the flesh. Look right here in John 14, where we were earlier, where Jesus turns to the disciples and says, anyone who has seen me has seen God the Father. And of course, the Bible uses, doesn't it, very relational language to describe God. He's described as a father. He's described as a friend. He's described as a, as a husband. He's a relational God who invites us to be in relationship with him. That is the, the invitation at the heart of the Christian faith, not just to know about God, but to know him. So that's the Bible. What does the Quran have to say by contrast on that theme? Well, if you kind of turn over to the Islamic side of things and you look at the Quran and how it describes God, you notice some things straight away. You notice straight away that the God who's described there is often quite a distant betrayal of God. You notice that the Quran actually borrows and retells some biblical stories and makes subtle changes as it does so. So the Adam and Eve story in the garden is retold by the Quran, but God in the, in the Quran does not walk and talk in the garden. The Quran's description of paradise has all kinds of things that are located there. We're told in the Quran there'll be rivers of wine and fruit trees and young women for the men to enjoy, but God's presence is not there. And the Quran also denies that uh, Jesus was God come in the flesh. You, you have, with the very greatest respect to my Muslim friends, something of, a, of an absent God. And furthermore, nowhere does the Quran give you an invitation to call God Father. The relationship between God and humanity in the Quran is one of master and servant, certainly not father, certainly not friend. Now, obviously, I'm a uh, Christian theologian describing this to you this morning. So am I being fair? Well, let me quote you the words from a gentleman called Shabir Akhtar, one of the uh, most uh, well-known Muslim scholars in the Western world, teaches at Oxford University, lovely man. He and I have dialogued on many, many occasions. He is a, he is a very, very uh, friendly guy, but he's also very direct on these differences from his perspective, from the Muslim side. And Shabir wrote this. He said, Muslims do not see God as their father. Men are servants of a just master, but they cannot, in Orthodox Islam, typically attain any greater degree of intimacy with their creator. And every time I read those words of Shabir, I always want to contrast them with those words of Jesus, who said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Huge difference from the portrayal of God uh, in the Bible. Now, so that's the first difference. Second difference concerns the fact that if you, um, if you want to have a relationship with somebody, of course, you can only do that if they are willing to make themselves known. 
So, for example, imagine at the end of the, uh, the service today, you're milling around at the back, and you suddenly um, catch the eye of somebody across the coffee who is the most beautiful, most handsome example of humanity you've ever met. If you're already married, by the way, don't do this thought experiment. It is, of course, your spouse. But for those of you who are not in a married state, you may do this thought experiment. And you, you see this beautiful, amazing person, and you fall instantly, madly, deeply in love. And you put some inquiries around. You ask Tony, you've, who is this person? I would love to get to know them because they, they seem very nice. And he tells you the bad news that, unfortunately, you have fallen in love with the shyest person in the entire of Tower Hamlets. They very rarely come to church. They spend most of their time locked away in their flat. They all, all order all of their groceries online. They work from home. They keep the windows shut. They are totally shy. They come to church once a year. Oh, and they come out for monthly meetings of Agrophobics Anonymous. But those are, those are closed-door meetings. So you can't get in. That was a top, thank you, that was a quality joke, that one. Don't ask about the rest. Well, look, here's the thing. You couldn't have a relationship with that kind of person because they're not willing to make themselves known. They are unknowable. They're hiding themselves away. You couldn't get to know them. And the same, of course, holds true of God. If God hid himself away in heaven, we might know about him. He could send some commands and directives down, but we could not know him. So I'm hugely grateful and excited that in the Bible we have the story of a God who from beginning to end doesn't just tell us his commands and his instructions but also his character. And as we saw earlier, a God who has done that most profoundly in the person of Jesus who, as I said a moment ago, said to his disciples, if you have seen me, said Jesus, you have seen God the Father. The God of the Bible is profoundly relational He makes himself known. He takes the initiative so that it's possible to know him. And this is a huge contrast with the presentation of God that we find in the Quran. If you read the 114 chapters of the Quran, you will certainly discover that Allah, the God of the Quran, reveals his commands. He tells you how he would have you behave. All of that kind of information is there, but he always keeps himself at a distance. He never never shows up personally. He never invites you into a relationship with him. His character remains hidden. And again, don't take my word for it. Take the word of a very, very world-renowned Muslim scholar, sadly no longer with us, died a couple of decades ago, Ismail al-Faraqi, who I think puts it incredibly powerfully, actually, when he writes these words. He says, Allah does not reveal himself to anyone in any way. Allah reveals only his will. Allah does not reveal himself to anyone. That is the great difference between Christianity and Islam, to which I can actually say wholeheartedly, amen, that is the great difference. He's got it entirely. So the God of the Bible is the God who's relational. He's a God who can be known. Lastly, and most importantly, that draw these threads together, he is also a God who is love. He is also a God who is love. But the idea and the theme of God being love is a theme you can find all over the Bible. It saturates the Bible, but perhaps the the verse that sums it up the most simply and the most eloquently, 1 John 4, 16, where we read these very, very simple little words, God is love. And even in that little statement, there is so much packed into there. See what the Bible is telling you. It's not that God is a God who acts lovingly. He is a God who is love in his very nature, and his very character. And that's explored and unpacked on page after page of the Bible. We saw it in John 13 earlier, where, uh, where Jesus uh, says uh, the reason he gives us uh, that we should love others 
He said we should love others because God has taken the initiative and loved us first. As I have loved you, so you should love others. Now, the interesting thing, this is really where people who you know, lean into the, well, all religions are essentially the same, probably really want to come into land. Because I have heard so often it's said, well, every religion teaches that God is love. You know, that is at the centre of all the world's great faith traditions, uh, people say very sophisticatedly and coming across as very impressive. But lovely as it may sound, it simply isn't true. It simply isn't the case. If we turn to the Quran, the scripture of our Muslim friends, that says many things about God, but nowhere, nowhere does it ever say those words, God is love. In fact, the main thing that when the Quran is talking about God and love, in 55% of the cases uh, where, that is where the Quran puts the word love and God together, the Quran is at pains to tell you the kind of people God doesn't love because love is something that is earned in the Quran. Most profoundly of all, actually, is in this one, is in chapter 6 of the Quran, where the Quran says, God does not love the prodigal. And if you know your Bible, if you know your New Testament, or if not, take a hold of a New Testament sometime and turn to the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, where Jesus tells the very famous story of the prodigal son, uh, a young man who was in utter rebellion, but whose father forgave him and loved him. And Jesus used that as a model of what God's love for us is like. According to Quranic theology, you take the initiative, and if you win God's approval, then maybe, maybe, maybe he might love you back. And in fact, some Muslim scholars go even further, arguing that well, love is a word you really shouldn't apply to God because you know, love applies sort of weakness, that God might lack something, so, so best not use the word. In fact, Murad Hoffman, very well-known Muslim scholar, writes this, one last Muslim theologian for you this morning. He says, Allah is self-sufficient. This fundamental self-description excludes that Allah is in love with his creation. It is safer and more accurate not to speak of love when addressing the various characteristics of God. But one final thought on love for you this morning. One final thought that I want to leave you with. It's one thing to talk about love, and we use the word love you know, in all various ways in our culture. In fact, we use the word love so widely, I think we sometimes forget its meaning. You know, we talk about loving our phones, loving our jobs, loving the places we live, loving our sports teams, for those of us who don't support Crystal Palace. You know, the, list goes, the list goes on. But what's, what does love really mean? In fact, actually, what is the greatest form of love you could possibly imagine? I love asking that question to friends of the faith or to my secular friends, because what's interesting, if you ask most people, what's the greatest form of love you could possibly imagine, most people, no matter their, their background, come into land on some version of the Jesus answer. Jesus said this in John 15. He said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And what I find fascinating is I think most human beings instinctively know this is true. You know, this is why we, you know, we love stories of people who've given their lives self-sacrificially, you know, whether it's a time of war or a parent giving a life to save a child or, or whatever it is. History and literature are replete, are full of stories of people living this out. My favorite example actually concerns this gentleman, Maximilian Kolbe, who's... Um, Story is not nearly as widely known as, uh, as perhaps it should be. Who, who was Maximilian? Well, he was a Polish Catholic monk who in uh, 1941 was arrested by the German Gestapo because he, like many others, had been rescuing Jewish people and other uh, people being persecuted by the Third Reich, by the Nazis, and smuggling them across the border out of Poland into safety. 
Well, in 1941, uh, the Germans caught wind of what he was doing. He was arrested and he was flung into uh, the notorious Auschwitz concentration camp. One year after his imprisonment, uh, another prisoner uh, escaped from the concentration camp. And this uh, deeply irritated the German authorities. And so the commander of the camp hit upon a scheme to ensure this would never happen again. He had all of the prisoners gathered in the prison yard. And he announced that he was about to pick the names of ten men at random. And those ten prisoners would be taken away and locked up in an underground cell with no food, no water, and left to starve to death in the darkness. To send a message, if you escape from this camp, this is what we do to your friends. And lo and behold, he read his name of ten men at random. And one of those men, when his name was read out on that list, began to to weep and have hysterics, as as one might imagine. He began crying out, you know, my my, my wife, my my children, what, what will become of them? On hearing those words, Maximilian stepped out of the crowd of prisoners, looked the commandant squarely in the eye and said, Sir, may I take the place of that man? The commandant agreed, the other prisoner uh, was released, and Maximilian was taken away with those other nine prisoners and locked up in the underground cell where they took about two weeks to die. In fact, the reason we know that story is the man whose life he saved survived the concentration camps, spent the rest of his life telling the story of what that follower of Jesus had done for him. Maximilian living out those words of his Lord, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Which raises a fascinating thought and observation, doesn't it? If God, God by his very nature, is the greatest being in the universe, which means that anything that God does is by definition the greatest. God is the greatest judge. God is the greatest creator, and so on and so on. Which means if God is a God of love, the love that God demonstrates must surely be, has to be, the highest form of love possible which is self-sacrificial love. And that, of course, is, as, as Christians, what we believe the God of the Bible uniquely did when he stepped into history in the person of Jesus and went to the cross to die for me and to die for you. The greatest form of love by the greatest being there is in the universe, in existence. Only the God of the Bible, only the God of the Bible is a God who is relational, a God who can be known, and a God who is loved. There is simply nobody like him at all. There is no one in comparison. Which leads me to one very last reason. There's a little coda, there's a little footnote at the end. Why the claim that all religions lead to God is a bad idea. Right at the end of John 13, uh, we've seen Jesus just explaining a lot of this stuff to Peter and the other disciples. He said that he's told Peter and the disciples that Jesus is going to walk this path of self-sacrificial love, lay down his life, and so on and so forth. And did you notice what Peter did? Rather than respond with gratitude and wonder, Peter leaps in with this boast, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. Peter is often the one to open his mouth in confidence, and what comes out is not always the wisest. Now, it's very easy to be hard on Peter from the you know, perspective of 2,000 years of history and think, what on earth was he thinking? How, how could you respond to what Jesus has just said by saying, no, no, I'll die for you, mate? Well, hasn't Peter, though, just simply grabbed hold of something common to most religions? Religion, by its very nature, tends to take things and make everything about us. Religion tends to make it all about my effort, you know, my prayer life. 
my devotion, my morality, my religiosity, my self-sacrifice. In fact, it's been remarked by some, you can divide the world's religions into three groups. Religions based on knowing, religions based on experience, and religions based on doing. In religions based on knowing, you have to think the right thoughts. Buddhism would be a case in point. Many Eastern religions, it's all based on experience. You've got the right experience, and it all will be okay. And then there are religions based on doing. You know, keep the right commands, Islam would be a case in point, and uh, then maybe, maybe, maybe you can earn your way upwards to heaven. But notice it in each case where the effort is based. It's all about you. It's all about me. It's all about me, 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 all the way. And all three of those approaches to religion, incidentally, they all lead to arrogance. They lead to you looking down on others. If you think you are saved because you know the right stuff, you are probably going to look down on those who are not as smart as you. If you think you're going to heaven because you've kept enough commandments, you are probably going to end up, a bit like the Pharisees at Jesus' time, looking down on those who haven't kept the same commands as you. And on and on it goes. And on and on it does go, actually, because in all three of those approaches to religion, you can always do more. You can always learn more stuff. You always have more experience. You always keep more commandments. Upwards and upwards and upwards you climb. You know, a fingernail's bloodied with the effort, never being sure that you've got far enough because you can always do more. Religion that is centered on you will not merely cause you to look down on others and become arrogant and self-righteous. It will also destroy you. It will destroy you because you burn yourself out trying to earn your way somehow into God's pleasure and good books. Religion like that will crucify you. By contrast, Jesus was crucified for you. He was crucified for you. He was crucified for your pride. He was crucified for your self-righteousness. He was crucified for your arrogance. He was crucified for our superiority, for our suspicion and our cynicism. He was crucified for your and for mine bad ideas, every bad idea. Not just the religious bad ideas, but all of them. He was crucified for all of the messed up brokenness that is human life. And then Jesus, the one who uniquely was the way, the truth, and the life. He looks at you, and he looks at me, and he says, come to the cross. Come to the cross. Come on in. Yeah, there is only this way. There is only this way. But the door to God's house is flung open. And there is welcome for all. This is exclusivity, yes, says Jesus. But it's a wide exclusivity. There is room for everyone. Everyone who repents and believes, no matter what their background, and no matter what their baggage. Do all religions lead to God? No, they don't. And why? Simply, no religion can lead us to God. No religion can lead us to God. But God can lead us to God. And that is what he has done, uniquely and beautifully and wonderfully, in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you uh, this morning that you are a God who is relational. You are a God who can be known. You are a God who is love. And you demonstrated all of those things when you stepped into history in the person of Jesus And so, Lord, for those of us this morning who who are followers of you, but maybe we've forgotten some of the power and some of the the ways that you are unique, we've perhaps lost sight of that, would you give us a fresh vision 
of who you are this morning and a fresh desire to share that with others, like our Muslim friends who don't know a God like this. And Lord, for those who are here this morning, because they're they're not followers of you, they've come as guests, they've come because they want to think about Christianity, maybe investigate more of your claims. Lord, would you give them a really strong revelation this morning of who you are? Thank you for the love that you have for them. Thank you that you demonstrated that highest form of love and you did it for each one of us and that you look each person here in the eyes and say, I love you and I did it for you. And might there be people here this morning for whom this is the morning when by the power of the Spirit the penny drops and there is that what that means for them. Thank you that there is, uh, there is no criteria for joining God's family except the willingness to, to bow the knee and come humbly. Thank you for doing that for us, Lord, in the person of Jesus. Amen. And I believe the worship band are now going to come back up and, uh, and lead us in some worship.